Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. Hello, I'm Sam Loy, and welcome to another episode of Human Ordinary, documentaries about culture, relationships, and all those things that make us human. So this one time, I was obsessed with Japanese culture. Well, mostly just film and food, but the obsession was real and deep. I also loved the way the language sounded, all percussive and expressive. So I decided that I wanted to see the place for myself, and I landed a job teaching English in a small port city about two hours on the train from Nagoya. Before I left, I bought a phrase book, which I thumbed through incessantly, rehearsing the sounds and imagining the scenarios I might find myself in, and I vowed to return to Australia well on my way to being fluent in the language. I've since learned that such an idea is foolish from the start, but at least I had all the best intentions. The problem was that a place like Japan is full of people who are keen to learn English, and because they're exposed to it from an early age, either through music or schooling or globalisation or whatever – Their English was much better than my Japanese was. There were times when I'd start talking to a local and I would try out my Japanese while they would try out their English. And then there's one time my Japanese was evidently so poor that a woman requested I speak in English instead so we could understand each other. It also quickly became evident that Japanese is not a language that takes too kindly to slight variations. Another time during the rainy season, A break in the downpour found me absent-mindedly leaving my umbrella in a shop. An hour or so later, it started raining again, and I realised my mistake, so I went back to see if it was still there. So in incomplete Japanese, I tried to simply say to the shopkeepers, my umbrella, boku no kaza, putting an upward inflection on the end in the hope that they would get that I was trying to find what I had lost. Except umbrella isn't kaza with a Z. It's Kasa, with an S. And I couldn't be understood. Two dumbfounded and wide-eyed faces stared at me from behind the counter. And it wasn't until I had done some charades and pointed outside to the rain that one of them said, Oh, Kasa, and then directed me to a box where they kept all lost things that needed finding. In Australia, everyone butchers the language. Not just those who have recently come from elsewhere, but everyone. And as such, I think most people here are pretty good at deciphering what a person is needing, even if their pronunciation is a bit off. But not in Japan. You have to be exact. And that, coupled with the fact that I didn't often get a chance to practice all that much, meant I returned home very, very far from well on my way to being fluent. In fact, all I've really retained is how to introduce myself and say, pleased to meet you. I still love their film and food, though. This time on Human Ordinary, producer May Jasper travels to Ho Chi Minh City to explore the relationship foreigners over there have with the Vietnamese language. 
I've been in Vietnam for about a month now, mostly in Ho Chi Minh City. It's an amazing place. Hot, chaotic, noisy, drastically uneven pavements, a million smells, a zillion motorbikes, so much amazing food that is always delicious and also always has the potential to poison you. It's a head rush of a place, a sudden hot flush of a town. I'm over here interviewing English-speaking expats. There are a lot of them in Vietnam. And here is a pair of fairly startling facts. Number one, most Vietnamese adults don't speak English. And number two, most expats don't speak Vietnamese. Just for example, I interviewed 11 expats for this story and got to know many more. Only two of them spoke Vietnamese fluently. And both of them were of Vietnamese descent. Having been here a month, I can definitely understand how this is possible. Food is cheap, and menus often have English translations, particularly in the more Western-style restaurants and coffee shops. Travel is cheap, and the Grab app, Vietnamese Uber, comes in English, so it's easy to get around. And the jobs that would bring most people to Vietnam, for example, being an English teacher, don't require you to learn Vietnamese. And it's daunting to learn a language as an adult. Vietnamese is a hard language, it's tonal which is particularly difficult for English speakers. And so, most expats don't choose to learn. And they live in Vietnam for years in expat world, with only foreigners for friends, and never speaking to a Vietnamese person except to order a bowl of noodle soup. In this episode, I talk to people who've made this choice. I try and work out whether expat world is a blessing or a curse and whether it's ever possible to engage with a foreign culture without learning the language. All right, let's get started. First of all, meet Anna. Where I'm only going to take the bits where you sound very intelligent. Ah, thank you. So, Anna is a brash, bold go-getter, full of infectious enthusiasm. I met her at an expat networking event during my first few days in Ho Chi Minh City, and when I asked her to suggest a quiet cafe where we could meet for our interview... She suggested the Mc Cafe across the road from Notre Dame de Saigon. Both of these things are exactly what they sound like. Notre Dame de Saigon is a copy of Notre Dame Cathedral in the middle of Ho Chi Minh City, and Mc Cafe is the cafe attached to McDonald's. This location, within sight of two such potent symbols of cultural imposition and global domination, is the perfect place to interview Anna. But the location, like just about everywhere else in Vietnam, comes with a fair amount of background noise, so apologies in advance. Anyway, back to Anna. Anna is from the Philippines, currently in the process of starting two businesses, one of which is a not-for-profit with the aim of literally saving the world by 2030. And she was super excited to take the time to be interviewed for Human Ordinary because she is super excited about literally everything, except learning Vietnamese. I love to learn languages. I'm... Uh, my goal is to learn a lot of European languages. Like I'm, I have, I feel like I have a very good base in French. So I really want to try to be fluent in French first, and then move on to the next language. But for me, I'm really prioritizing the languages which I think can be most useful. So I feel like after French, it's going to be Spanish and Mandarin, 
Well, I mean, that's a lot of languages. Let me be real. I want to be... I want to be a polyglot, basically. I love it. Okay, um, I love to travel, and I want to be able to speak to people yeah. when I travel. So. Is there any circumstance under which Vietnamese would get onto that list? You mean speaking? Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know how long you're planning to be in Ho Chi Minh City for, but if you were going to be here a long time, it yeah. makes some sense. I, well, I definitely would love to learn Vietnamese. Um... I would learn maybe very basic Vietnamese first, um, but for me, it's not too much of a, how do you say, it's not going to be too useful for me, even if I'm planning to have a business here, because, you know, I can hire Vietnamese people, why not, and then they can do the communications and all, but I'm not limiting myself to the Vietnam market, you know, I want to be global, like, I, we have... Um, the reason that Anna doesn't want to learn Vietnamese is pretty telling. Because expat world only exists because expats have money. If you're going to live in a foreign country but not integrate, it costs money. You pay the country to adapt so you don't have to. In Anna's case, you don't learn Vietnamese, you hire Vietnamese speakers. And... Let's be real, this sounds to me like some white people bullshit. I would know, because I'm a white person and so are most expats. Coming into a country, imposing our culture through economic might, that's kind of our thing. But Anna is not white. She's from the Philippines. And this is important, because it means that in coming to Vietnam and speaking English, but not Vietnamese, she's not imposing her culture on Vietnam. There are no menus in Ho Chi Minh City with Tagalog translations. She's benefiting from an imposition that was imposed on her. Because in the Philippines, unlike in Vietnam, most people speak English. Oh, no, oh, no. I mean, all the Filipinos know how to speak English. I mean, that's, I think that's the one good thing about Filipinos is wherever you go in the Philippines, everybody, somebody will surely be able to speak to you fluently. If... If someone doesn't speak to you in English, he's just he or she is just lazy to speak English. Not really, really, but but they can understand for sure. Everybody can This fact English. that most Filipinos speak English is clearly the result of cultural imposition. But it is also what allowed Anna to leave home and get her first really good job. This was before her time in Vietnam when she lived in Dubai. So what? Let's talk about when you moved to Dubai then, because that's your first time yeah. in a yeah, yeah, city. Sure, sure, sure. And, and what was the adjustment period? Oh my God! For me, it was amazing. I mean, I was excited to I was excited to leave home. I just because um, back home, I honestly didn't have too much freedom. Like um, you know, I would still have curfew because you know, I was still living with my parents. In the Philippines, normally you would still be living with your parents even if you're 26, 27, 28, 30 years old. Just because, you know, you don't really get a lot of opportunities there. I mean, um, when I moved to Dubai, I was so excited. I wasn't scared at all. I wasn't homesick at all for many months. I didn't care. I, I wasn't looking to go, go back home because, you know, I've been there for my whole life. I love I love adventure. I love to go places. I love to travel. I love to, to discover new places. I love to meet new people. It was one of the best years. Um, one of the best years of my life. I mean, of course, I've had some bad experiences as well. But, you know, I, I loved it. And I, I can't wait to go back. 
Without this cultural imposition in the Philippines, if Anna didn't know English, Anna would not have been able to get a job in Dubai. Hell, without white people bullshit in Dubai, Anna wouldn't have been able to get a job there unless she learned Arabic. She would have missed out on some of the best experiences of her life. She would have been stuck in the Philippines where opportunities are limited. And this point is further hammered home by what happened next. Anna left her job in Dubai and came back to the Philippines to start her first business. And unfortunately, this did not go well. She couldn't find enough clients in the Philippines and eventually, to make ends meet, she had to take another job overseas with another architecture firm, this time in Ho Chi Minh City. And if you compare when you first arrived in Dubai to when you first arrived in Ho Chi Minh City, yeah. was there, were you as excited? Is, I guess, my to be honest, question. no, because um, coming when uh, I came to the Philippines to try to set up my company and it wasn't really doing well for six months. So when I moved here, I was uh, in a bit of a depressed um, situation. So I didn't really like to be here, to be honest, when I first got here. I just didn't want to be here. I just want to go home. and uh, I wasn't really liking it, but eventually I forced myself to get out of that depression. And then I started to socialize more. I started to go to networking events more. And then I started to get my confidence back. And then now I'm loving Ho Chi Minh. So, yeah, it's great to be here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, She got herself out of her depression by going to networking events. In other words, by joining the expat community in Ho Chi Minh City, an English-speaking community. So the result of the English-speaking world's cultural imposition in the Philippines actually ends up being positive for Anna. It gets her better economic opportunities, some of the best years of her life, and gives her a community when she is alone and depressed and really needs it. Would it be better if Tagalog speakers in the Philippines had the same opportunity as English speakers, to stay home and earn good money while speaking their native language? Obviously. Are some, if not all, of the economic problems in the Philippines the ultimate result of some white people bullshit in the past? I mean, I'm not an expert, but probably. But access to a community with greater economic prospects that exists all over the world and can be a comforting, familiar presence when you feel alone or out of place? That's not nothing. Let's face it, living overseas can be very isolating, and a community that welcomes you can be very comforting, particularly when you're somewhere you don't want to be. After the break, further journeys into expat world. See you then. 
turning 60 in September. Uh, moved to Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon um, September 2018. So been here around um, maybe 10 months now or 11 months now. Um, I met Paul at Le Square Epicier Fan which is a very French name for a cafe that exists in Ho Chi Minh City District 2, but may actually be holographically projected from a shopping centre in Melbourne's southeastern suburbs. For those from Melbourne, I'm thinking of Malvern Central, but make up your own mind. Paul's wife works for an organisation that's trying to get rid of dengue fever. When the organisation moved to Ho Chi Minh City, Paul and their two kids came with her. Paul had been working in local government in Melbourne, he took long service leave to come to Vietnam, and then, while he was away, his department restructured. So now, he's out of work. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And how have your kids been adjusting, do you think? Okay, so my daughter went to boarding school in Australia. Um, yeah, she's quite an independent sort of, sort of child. Um, so she was fine moving here. My son was a different matter. Yeah, he went your to... Your son's a, younger, I guess? 13. Yeah. Went to the civil school called Ripley Primary, where he had a lot of friends, and um, it was really hard for him to leave them. You know, he was really he grieved for quite a while, um, but he's uh, he has settled in, so he's I, I think he's okay now. He's, you know, it's probably hardest for me, really. You know, because I've moved from you know a pretty high-powered job to 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 nothing. So I think it yeah. is hard. Like the, I've talked to a few expats now, and the ones, you know, it makes such a difference to have a workplace where you immediately have, you know, people that you meet and a thing that you're doing and a, and a place that you're going, and you know what I mean? It's a, it's a useful kind of network and, and uh, support network. Yeah, well, I've lost all my networks. Sorry? I've lost all my networks, so yeah. they're all back home. Yeah. So, yeah, it's quite isolating. And so, like Anna. When Paul felt isolated and out of place, he took refuge in the comfort and familiarity of the expat world. If those are two ends of a spectrum, like spending most of your time with foreigners or becoming uh, as much like a local as you can, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? Uh, I'd probably be with people who are Australian, European, yeah. Yeah. And... I think I understand why, but for the benefit of the people who aren't here and don't know what it's like, why would that be your preferred? Because most Vietnamese people don't speak English, mm. so it's difficult to communicate. It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uncomfortable trying to to get your message across to somebody who really doesn't get it. Yeah. Which is okay because it's their country; it's not mine. Yeah. I find it harder to sympathise with Paul's desire to retreat to expat world than with Anna's. I mean, they're both basically coming from the same place, taking refuge in the familiar when they are isolated in a country they don't want to live in. But when Anna is dismissive of the idea of learning Vietnamese, I feel like some of it comes from the fact that she learned English. You know, she learned English, so why can't they? She put in the effort to learn an international language, if you will. To do otherwise would be lazy. And though I don't agree with the sentiment, I respect the effort, you know? With Paul, though, his dismissal of the idea of learning Vietnamese, it comes from somewhere else. I mean, devil's advocate, obviously, if you wanted to, you could 
uh, spend more time learning Vietnamese and, and try to work that connection that way. But I hear you, it's a very hard language. So Yeah, and I'm not going to be here for the rest of my life as well. I'm kind of looking at another year maybe before we go back home. So it seems like an unnecessary ordeal to put myself through, along with everything else. So I'm happy to stick with you. An unnecessary yeah. ordeal? Feels a bit rich. I mean, yes, Vietnamese is a hard language to learn, but particularly when he's complained about feeling isolated. If you feel isolated, but avoid ways you might connect with people, like, say, learning the local language? Yeah. It's hard to feel sympathetic. There's no question that expat world does make life easier for expats. But maybe it's also a crutch. A crutch can be great as a way to heal, as I feel like it has been to an extent for Anna. But if you rely on a crutch, it can stop you from solving your real problem. In Paul's case, I think his real problem comes from fear. And when you came here, were you excited about Vietnam specifically, or would it have been this, would the your interest have been the same no matter where you were moving? I was pretty scared actually. For me, the Vietnam War was was close to the surface. You know, I was when I was a kid, the war was going on. You know, you'd see the TV news, and and uh, it was quite a quite a scary sort of place. And you know, I'd heard all about Agent Orange and landmines. And, you know, Viet Cong, <laughs> you know, and I thought, oh, are they going to hate us? Because I probably would, you know. This is an understandable fear for a man of Paul's generation, and I can sympathise with that. In my opinion, and it's just my opinion, and I've only been in the country a month, the only way to overcome this fear would be to get to know the Vietnamese people better. But... While Paul still has his crutch, the option provided by the expat world to stay comfortable and familiar, I think that is always the option Paul will take. There is one final expat I want you to meet. A man who, when he moved to a new country, did not stay with what was safe and familiar, but leapt into change feet first. To be fair, in his case, the safe and familiar wasn't really an option. Uh, so my name is, uh, the long version is Dr. Michele Tomei-Glomczewski II. Sure. Uh, everyone calls me Mile, uh, mental health professional, uh, PhD in psychology and a couple of masters in related fields. Got Mile has lived a fairly amazing and dramatic life. He's only recently moved to Ho Chi Minh City and these days he divides his time between Vietnam, Australia and Cambodia, working on different projects. It was to Cambodia, not Vietnam, that he moved when he first left Australia, back in 1993. He moved there as a university professor. The country was still reeling in the wake of the terrifying reign of the Khmer Rouge, which killed all Cambodia's teachers and professors, along with about 25% of the population as a whole. And so when you moved to Cambodia, did you know anybody in the country? No. My best friend in Melbourne, who had gone to primary school and high school and university, was, was Cambodian, so at least I had connections. I lived with his family. Now, they uh, they didn't speak a word of English. They'd never been to Australia. You know, I would go home and say, hello, and they'd stare blankly at me like, what are you saying? <laughs> um, a lot of people that I talk to about that experience of moving overseas, they find it quite isolating. 
particularly when they, you know, they don't necessarily know the language, there's no one that they can communicate with. Was that your initial experience, that it was isolating? Um, no. No, it wasn't isolating. Because, um, I, yeah, I had to learn the language. I didn't know people. So there were so many things to do. And, you know, the, the university had no electricity, no running water. Uh, from the third floor up until the ninth floor, it's a nine-storey building, no doors and windows. And a, the, the back of the building had been taken off in a tank battle in 1976. That was just this open... So rather than being isolated and things being difficult, they were just... So just challenges. So my tech- Mille did eventually learn the Cambodian language, Khmer, and he's currently in the process of learning Vietnamese. We spoke in his living room, and stuck to the walls were lists of Vietnamese vocab words and pronouns. Because of the time and place in which he moved to Cambodia, Mille did not have the option to not learn the language. Expat world did not exist, and so he had no crutch. And he did not feel isolated. Is it just that simple? Would all expats be happier if they learn the local language? And is the fact that they have the option not to disadvantaging them? Is it doing them damage? You're probably the only white person I've spoken to who has learned the language of the country they're living in. And that's, I think some of that's to do with when you move to Cambodia. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, mm. at the time, there wasn't really an option. If you move, if you're someone who moved to Ho Chi Minh in mm. the last couple of years, you have, it is completely possible to be absolutely fine and not speak a word of Vietnamese. And yeah. never, yes. and never... Yes, and, and it is interesting because I, I do face the same thing. Like, I mm. met someone in Cambodia last week, and I've not met them before, or maybe they kind of knew some of the same people, but they lived in Cambodia for 20 years. Mm. And they could order a cup of coffee and say thank you and, uh, you know, but it's like 20, 20 years, like... But <laughs> just on a, yeah. were you not even ever even slightly curious? Is my response to that. Even someone who's living in Vietnam for a year, you didn't want to know what anyone was talking about. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I, I I would say that if you put the Cambodian context, I did definitely have to learn Cambodian. Mm. It was the early nineties, and that was really, yeah. Um, however, when I moved to Malaysia in the late nineties, that wasn't required. Most people's spoke English fine, mm. uh, but I learned Malay quite well, mm. uh, and the same with Indonesian, you know, I learned, learned that quite well, but my mental health psychology background means I'm interested in human behaviour and culture without a language understanding, you mm. you can't tap very well into the culture. Yeah. But in saying that, so going back to the example of the gentleman I met a couple of weeks ago or two weeks ago in Cambodia, he lived in Cambodia for 20 years. And he was introduced to me by another close, like a really close friend of mine who'd known him for many years as well. And I said to my close friend in Cambodia, well, 20 years and he doesn't speak Cambodian. And my friend said, uh, probably more nicely than this, but he basically said, but he knows a lot more about Cambodia than you. And, uh, and I sat down with the gentleman. He did. He knew about the inner workings and the politics and the... Uh, and the cultural aspects and where things were and uh, because he'd lived in that culture and because he'd lived in that country and so he'd accumulated a massive knowledge and he'd also been quite curious about how things work so he hadn't taken on the language but he'd taken on very much understanding 
So you mean because he'd lived there consistently for 20 years and had because I know you're running around and doing But he'd things. also make an, he would make an effort to understand, and, and that's probably the key. So it's easy to judge someone because they don't make an effort that you think is the right effort. Okay, ow, that hits home. I'll admit it, I worked hard to be even-handed in this episode, but I have a tendency to be judgy when it comes to people who live in a foreign country and don't speak the language. Part of that is because it seems like they're taking the easy way out. Part of that is because of the unpleasant colonial overtones. But it takes effort to live in a foreign country, and let's face it, it's more effort than I'm currently putting in. In a week, I'll be back in Melbourne, where I also only speak to English speakers, and most of the time, if I'm talking to a Vietnamese person, it is to order a bowl of noodle soup. Since I haven't made the effort to move to Vietnam, to adapt to the uneven pavement, the heat and the noise, I will go home with a much lesser understanding of Vietnam than the people who live here, regardless of whether they have learned the language or not. And in the end, understanding is the key. Sometimes, most of the time, making an effort to understand and not to judge is all we can do. I want to thank all the expats I interviewed for this episode, particularly Anna, Paul and Miele, obviously, but also Albert, Carly, Chris, Dean, Nicholas, Remy and Vin. I'm sorry I couldn't include all of you, but you all helped me to build my understanding of expat world. Original music for the episode was provided by Kent Sutherland. That was May Jasper. If you like the cut of May's jib, then you should check out a brand new podcast called The Artery. It's a daily show bringing you all the news, reviews, interviews and the goings-on at the Melbourne Fringe Festival, which is now on at venues all over the city. The Artery is available wherever you get your podcasts. Human Ordinary is produced in Melbourne and Sydney by May Jasper, Mick Cavazzini, Cinnamon Napard and me, Sam Loy. Special thanks to Claire Tonti at Planet Broadcasting and Guy Scott Wilson at ACAST. Our artwork is by Fergal Quigley and our theme music is by The Contortionist Handbook. Score a free t-shirt and ad-free episodes by subscribing to Human Ordinary at Possible.com. For more info on the show, head to the website or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Anyway, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.